still not Jeannie Phillips. But this is Vermont Ed Reads, a podcast by, for, and with Vermont educators, talking about books we believe have the power to make meaningful student-centered change in schools. Jeannie Phillips is on a well-deserved vacation, but we have an episode that we recorded earlier. Alex Chevron Vanette joins us to talk about her new book, Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education. How does it work in classrooms? How can you, as an educator, use your own coping strategies to dismantle inequity at your school? Will action research help? And exactly what does convincing your landlord to let you have a pug have to do with it all? Alex Chevron Vanette explains. Today, I'm with Alex Chevron Vanette, and we'll be talking about her book, Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education. Thank you so much for joining me, Alex. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks for having me, Jeannie. Um, I am an educator based in Vermont. Uh, For those of you in Vermont, I'm in Winooski uh, and I've lived in Winooski for a few years and been in Vermont for, I guess, 12 12 or 13 years at this point. It flies by when you you live here. Um, I, I say educator because that's easier than explaining what I do on a day-to-day basis, which is I wear very many different hats all under the the umbrella of education. So one of the things I do is I teach at CCV, the Community College of Vermont, um, and I teach sort of interdisciplinary humanities courses there. Um, I also teach teachers through Castleton Center for Schools and through Antioch University. um, And those are kind of professional development courses for teachers. I do workshops and professional learning for educators, um, you know, which lately has meant being on Zoom a lot, um, but pre-COVID got to drive all around New England and sometimes beyond uh, working with teachers in schools. And of course I write, um, you know, besides this book, I'm often writing for my own blog and for a few other websites, um, all connected to trauma-informed education. So like I said, it's easier to just say educator than to sort of give the whole list. And I'm sure I left a few things out. (laughs) Oh, and my background I should say is um, in teaching middle and high school. So I worked at an alternative therapeutic school which I talked a lot about in the book. Um, And uh, and that really sparked my passion for trauma-informed education because that's what we were doing day in, day out. Thank you so much for uh, sharing all of that. I sort of know you in lots of those different places, but not all of them. And um, you're certainly the first first person that comes to mind when I think trauma-informed education and I want to look at an expert. I think you. So I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, But I also know you as a reader. We've been in a book group together before a while back. So what are you reading right now? So usually I'm reading something in fiction and something in nonfiction at the same time. So for nonfiction, I'm reading Mariam Kaba's new essay collection called We Do This Till We Free Us, which is about abolition and a hundred million other beautiful things. Um, And I'm reading that, I actually read nonfiction pretty slowly and that book I'm reading even more slowly because I just wanna savor it. Um, It's full of these little essays that are packed with so much. You just wanna read 
three pages and then think about it for a few days. <laughs> so I'm reading that right now. And then for nonfiction or for fiction, um, I read fiction really fast and I love to read just sort of escapist, lighthearted stuff, especially when my days are filled with reading really heavy things about trauma. And so right now I'm reading this um, older mystery series called The Cat Who um, uh, by Lillian Jackson Braun. And it is, it is about this guy with two Siamese cats who help him solve mysteries and it's delightful. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> I um I also have Miriam Kava's book, and um, thank you for that prescription and how to read it. I haven't started it because I'm taking a class right now, but I'm gonna take it slow. Um, I'm reading a mystery that I love called Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Woolley. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. Ooh, she's a Native American writer, Ojibwe writer, and I highly recommend it for mystery lovers. So I'll add it to my list. We'll swap mysteries. So you um, have told us a little bit about yourself, but you really begin this book, um, Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education, uh, by positioning yourself in relation to the work. And I wondered if you wanted to share a little bit about your positionality and what brought you to both trauma-informed work and equity work. So where I come to this work from is as a teacher, and I try to say clearly in the book that I'm not a mental health clinician or therapist or psychologist. Um, I do sort of inhabit an interesting space, which is that I went to college to become a teacher. I got my teaching license in, in secondary education with my English endorsement, um, and then I ended up working straight out of college at this therapeutic school. And at this therapeutic school, we were cross-trained in educational professional de development and um, also professional development from the clinical director and counseling techniques. And our role was called counseling teacher. And so over the eight years, including summers that I worked there, um, I tried to add it up once, but it's really hundreds of hours of counseling focused professional development, in addition to also hundreds of hours of education-focused professional development, um, which I, I kind of wish that all teachers had that because there's so many tools from counseling that are so helpful in teaching. Um, but even with all those hours, I still do not hold any type of um, clinical license. And I think that's important to say because I wanted to write a book that was about being trauma-informed, but not trauma-specific. And I think that sometimes the two terms can get mixed together a little bit because a lot of trauma-informed texts really look at when I have a student who's experienced trauma in my classroom, how should I help that student? And that's really important. And there's some things like counseling strategies that teachers can use or particular pieces from the neuroscience that teachers might be informed by, and that's really helpful. But in my book, I really wanted to look at what does it mean to be trauma-informed in a more universal way um, and in a way that doesn't require me to really know or even spend a lot of time dwelling on which of my students have experienced trauma. And so I position myself um, by just stating clearly that I'm an educator. Um, I've taught in this middle and high school setting. I've taught after-school programming for younger kids. I currently teach community college and graduate students and adults. And so I'm really bringing all of that experience as a teacher 
um, to this in the hopes of reaching other teachers who, who hear the phrase trauma-informed education and they go, well, I'm not a counselor, is that really for me? And so I'm trying to say, absolutely, this is for you. I'm also not a counselor. So let's let's work on this together. I love that like sort of way you've captured the, um, the in-between of, of counseling and teaching and the overlap between the two. And you can see that throughout your book. And I, I think, um, there's a way in which all of that, um, all of your learning, your deep learning and practicing has led to you sort of talking about a shift. In many schools, we hear about um, folks doing trauma work with students and they're talking about the impact of a trauma. And you really reframe that in a way that I think is powerful, which is how do we go from um, addressing impacts on kids to um, addressing the causes of trauma? And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so a lot of trauma-informed education resources are framed in this way of, uh, you'll see this phrase over and over, children who bring trauma to school. And so there's almost this image of this kid is at home or somewhere out there and this trauma happens. We don't see it, we weren't part of it. And then they come to school and they've got this like backpack of trauma and then it's our job to respond to that. But in reality, that's not the full picture because it is true that kids are experiencing trauma and you know, quote unquote, bringing trauma to school. But it's also true that kids who otherwise have not experienced trauma are experiencing trauma inside of our schools. And I think it's really hard to talk about because when we talk about that, we then have to acknowledge that we educators are complicit in that. And that feels horrible. <laughs> that feels horrible to think about because teachers get into teaching because we love kids and we wanna help them and we want them to grow. We want school to be a safe place. But if you really look at the experiences, especially of marginalized people going through school, you will hear again and again about ways that um, people experience trauma inside of schools, whether it is bullying or um, harassment by peers, um, whether it is teachers being hateful or, um, or denigrating their students, which unfortunately is all too common experience, whether it's connected to the curriculum and the ways that the curriculum was harmful or that the curriculum um, erased or invisibilized certain students, um, whether it was the stress of high stakes testing and, and the surrounding environment connected to that. I mean, there's, there's truly so many ways that students experience trauma inside of school. So if we're willing to acknowledge that, then trauma-informed education becomes about both what students are bringing to school and what students are bringing from school. And that means that our role is to address that trauma that's happening in school and prevent it um, and transform our schools into places where that's not happening. Whew. Can I read uh, a couple paragraphs from your book that I found so powerful that echo just what you just said? Please do. Okay, this is from pages 27 and 28, and I put about 42 exclamation points around it. 
This is the uncomfortable truth. Schools cause trauma and harm. Teachers and administrators as individuals can perpetuate this harm, such as making derogatory remarks about children's racial identity or family. School systems, such as rules, policies, and procedures can cause trauma and harm, for example, harsh discipline policies that refer children to the criminal justice system for behavior in school. And students can cause trauma and harm to one another through bullying and harassment, especially when adults allow racism and other oppression to flourish. This can be painful to reconcile. I believe most educators get into teaching because we care about kids. We want to be part of schools that feel like communities. It's tempting to look at the examples I just mentioned and say, well, that doesn't happen in my school, or I would never cause pain to one of my students. Looking away, however, benefits no one. If we want to create more equitable schools and systems for all students, we need first to reckon with practices and attitudes currently causing harm. I found that so powerful because it reminded me of the importance of doing the internal work and the external work in, um, in, in coordination with each other. And I see so much of that internal external happening in your book, um, in the, in the practices you suggest. And I, I don't know, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. I just love this so much and the way you're so clear about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult thing to reflect on. And it's so tied into all of the other types of reflective practice we have to do. And also this, you know, I think I probably use the phrase both and in my book about 7000 times. And also, if you've ever heard me talk for more than five minutes, also 7000 times. But I really I, it's really just so key to everything, this idea of both and rather than either or. So um, I think about this paradox of teaching that teaching is about me and it isn't about me, right? It's about the students and teaching is really human, right? It's a, it's a person in a room with other people. We're in a Zoom with other people. Um, and so it is about me because I bring my perspective to everything that I'm doing, everything I'm saying, the choices that I'm making. And so it, it's this need to say, okay, well, I have to look at all these systems and structures and I have to look at on a very personal level, have I committed any harm, even if I didn't mean to? And what does that mean? And how do I make it right? Um, so it, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a complex not to unravel, I think. It's, yeah, I so appreciate that because in honesty, like we've all committed harm, like we've all done that unintentionally and, and our intentions aren't as important as the impact we've had and how we like move forward from that. And so one of the things that um, really stood out in your book is that you make it really clear that you can't be trauma-informed without also being anti-racist, that you can't be trauma-informed without fighting oppression beyond the school doors in order to serve all students. And I really appreciated how clear, how clearly you state that. And, um, and then I also felt the both and of like, it's hard work for educators because some of the work will involve shame and regret for our past actions and our complicity. And that, that kind of work takes space and it takes a lot of support. 
teachers do need a lot of support and space to unravel these things. And in part four of the book where I talk about systems change, one of the things that I tried to do was really target leaders and administrators and bring them into the work and understanding that some readers are going to be classroom teachers and some readers are going to be administrators, um, but hoping that if you're a teacher reading this book, something you take away is, I don't have to do this all by myself and I deserve support. And I really tried to, in particular, target administrators when I talked about wellness and reflective practice, because those are things that leaders need to set the stage for. Um, it's, it's great to tell a teacher, you know, you should have reflective practice and take care of yourself. And that's true. And right, another both and if you're counting. <laughs> um, and uh, you can't just magically self care your way out of an incredibly stressful situation. And so I think it's really incumbent upon school leaders to set the stage so that teachers can delve into this work. Um, they can feel vulnerable. They don't have to feel like if I mess up, then you know, I'm out of here. So I think in order to really dig into, you know, unpacking your own stuff so that you can pick up this difficult work, um, you have to have that backup. I totally hear that and appreciate that. And I saw the layers, the way that you built this book. It's like you're asking administrators to do a layer of the work that's very similar to the work you're asking teachers to do. And I really appreciated the congruity between the different layers. Um, I also appreciated your ability to see it whole. I've been using that phrase, seeing things whole. Um, and to me, what that means is that, um, that these aren't separate part, these aren't separate layers of work necessarily. These aren't separate initiatives, but rather they're um, complex pieces of the same puzzle right? And they should work together. And so on page one, you lay out right away, too often trauma-informed practices are considered a separate initiative from a school's efforts to create educational equity. It's time to change that. Equity-centered trauma-informed education is more than adding together existing trauma-informed education and equity initiatives. Instead, equity-centered trauma-informed education is integrated and holistic approach. And what I hear you just saying just now is that that means that, that, that wellness and reflective practice and PD are also all wrapped up into that same whole. So I guess I, guess I want without people necessarily having read the book yet, how, how does that like fit as a whole system for you? How do you see that playing out in schools as a whole system? Well, I had this experience a few years ago that started to spark my thinking on this, um, where I had run a workshop through professional development group on trauma-informed practice. And I went back to them a few months later and I said, hey, I, I felt like that went well. Um, I'd love to work with you again and offer another workshop on trauma-informed education. And the message I got back was, um, actually people aren't that interested in trauma-informed education this year. Now it's all about equity. And so at the time, my initial reaction was to be annoyed at, <laughs> The, the, the person who said that and to go, 
wow, they, they don't recognize that trauma-informed education is not just a buzzword. But later, I had the realization to be annoyed at myself <laughs> because I hadn't been clear enough that trauma-informed education is necessary for equity work and vice versa. Um, and that my commitment to equity needed to be louder when I describe what trauma-informed education is. Um, and really, I think a lot of schools, they literally have separate teams, right? You know, schools are all about the PLCs or the teams and they literally have separate teams. One is doing equity and one is doing trauma-informed work. Um, and to me, they are just so integrated and they build on each other and they multiply each other. One of my suggestions for teachers is really quite simple, which is to literally take the two teams and make them one team. <laughs> that, that just as easy as that, right? Take the two teams, share the Zoom link, share the meeting room, do it all together. Um, because if we're working towards equity, uh, then we are disrupting those things that can cause trauma in school. So we're taking the two teams and making them one team because inequity causes trauma and school is not equitable for students who've experienced trauma. And there are so many more connections between them, which I explore throughout the book. Um, and so my, my challenge to folks is to really see how can you integrate these things as fully as possible. I love that. And I, um, I found this section that you um, share on how, how to tell if equities at the center of your work. So um, powerful. And also, um, you know, you're laughing because it is a little bit funny, I think, but also it's just really a powerful way to frame it. Um, would you, do you think you could read the bullets on page 11 and um, 12? So where is equity now, if not in the center? And then here are some of the places I thought equity could be. On the side, equity work is often relegated to a committee that meets only a few times a year and spends more time studying equity than taking action to bring it about. Underground, equity work is taken up by only a few teachers, often teachers of color, who implement anti-racist and other equity-focused practices behind closed doors for fear of rocking the boat. In the ether, equity work is talked about only in the abstract or used as a buzzword in the school's mission statement. No one ever actually talks about what inequity looks like concretely and at their own school or how to fix it. Or nowhere, in too many schools, equity is never talked about at all. I find that so powerful because I think it helps, uh, it can help us identify where we are in doing equity work. And then I also find this sentence right below so um, uh, important. Equity at the center means always asking, does this practice, policy, or decision help or harm students from marginalized communities? Because the same factors that cause inequity, for example, bias and discrimination, also cause trauma. We can't unlink the two. That's so powerful. That's such a, whew, it takes my breath away a little bit to think about the power that happens if we really center uh, equity and trauma-informed practices in our schools. What, what, what could happen? Absolutely. And I think it's important to really explicitly draw those connections because 
I think a lot of times when we talk about trauma, it's in this way of, it's just this thing and it's just there. And, uh, and it happens to individual people and, oh, it's very sad for those individual people. But if you really look at the things that cause trauma, almost every single one of them is political and systemic in at least some fashion, right? Um, uh, you look at things like um, uh, child abuse or sexual assault. Uh, those things are caused by uh, what's called rape culture or a culture that you know glamorizes and permits those things. Um, even if you look at something like natural disasters, we know that the increase in those is caused by global warming, which is absolutely a political and systemic issue. And so, you know, you, you then start to see that these are all things that, uh, in a way, it's hopeful, right? Which is, sounds weird after what I just described. But if you think of trauma as just randomly happening to individuals, then there's not a lot you can do to stop it. But if you recognize the systemic factors at play, the human created systemic factors, well, if humans create something, they can uncreate it, right? So they can destroy it. And so if you say, oh, this trauma is caused by these systems of oppression, then it gives us a job to do, which is to knock down those systems of oppression. Ooh, I hear echoes of Paul Gorski in that. And I know you quote him in the book too. And so, for example, I remember seeing him speak where he said, you can't really be an equity oriented educator and not be for the living wage. You can't be an mm -hmm. equity oriented educator and not want all people to have access to healthcare because Absolutely. those things, right, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say about Paul Gorski that he's one of the editors of this book. And this is the first book in his new series. And I'm really excited to read the others that are coming as well. So you'll, yes, you will see many echoes of Gorski uh, throughout the book. Um, thanks. I'm looking forward now to the whole series. I didn't even know that. Do you know what the others are about? Can you give us a preview or, or do I just have to wait? Um, I think that you just have to wait, but, uh, but rest assured, they'll be great. How might we reframe some of the practices in the book like an action research project? So I think the section that lends itself most to thinking about through an action research uh, lens is where I talk about these four proactive priorities of uh, being trauma-informed. And those priorities are predictability, flexibility, connection, and empowerment. And in the book, I talk about how all of these is connected to what we know about trauma and that by prioritizing these in our decision-making, um, we can better create environments that are supportive for students who may have experienced trauma, or may experience trauma in the future. And so I give all kinds of examples in that section about different practices and you know, taking flexibility, for example, in my own practice, uh, teaching community college, I feel like every semester is an action research project in flexibility when I have to sit down and write my attendance policy. <laughs> um, and I have really struggled and gone back and forth with this over the years. And I am always talking to other teachers about it and I'm asking my students about it and I'm looking at the outcomes and thinking about, okay, well, I did it this way this semester and this student, 
you know, had this issue or this student seemed to really thrive when I framed it this way. Um, and so that's just one example, but, but to me, it, it's sort of fun to think about it as an action research project because then it becomes sort of a constantly evolving part of my practice rather than I feel like I failed with it. Um, and, and I think that that's how you have to think of anything with equity and being trauma-informed because as I say a couple of times, there's no checklist and there's no, um, there's no there there, right? There's no there to get to uh, where you are perfectly trauma-informed and every single thing is equitable because people are messy and that's just not gonna happen, right? There's no perfect perfection that we're working towards. And so instead, I just think about identifying some of those places where I know that I could be more flexible and more supportive in this thing. So I'm going to try it a different way this time. And then I'm going to reflect on what happened and then I'm going to do it again. I, I love that. And I love this, like, like let go of perfection now because that's completely out of reach. Like it's not even what we're striving for. We're just striving to learn. And so when I thought um, you put all of these, these four concepts together on page 77 in this way that um, my boss, John Downs would, would refer to as uh, a kind of simplexity. It's simple and complex at the same time. And I thought it's such a good frame for instructional design. I love to design instruction. And so your questions are, is it predictable? Is it flexible? Does it foster empowerment? Does it foster connection? And I can imagine as I'm designing uh, an instructional unit, being able to ask myself, okay, where's the predictability? Where am I calling on the routines, the things that kids already know well, right? Like where am I calling on the structures that tend to support our learning in the classroom anyway? Is it flexible? Where is their choice or where is there's opportunities for kids to do it in their own way or to have a little more time if they need for this or that or a little less time, a little, you know, and so that's this idea of flexibility. Does it foster empowerment? Where is their agency baked into it? Like where do kids get to decide what they're learning about or how they're learning about it or how they're sharing their learning? And then does it foster connection? Are we building relationships? Are we building that like relational glue uh, between us as we do the work together? And so to me, like being able to do that in an instruction, reflect on how it went and then try it again the next time I design an instructional unit is like powerful action research cycle in action. Mm -hmm. So thank you for and the I gift of that. <laughs> You're welcome. And I also, you know, just past where those questions are in the book, I give a version of a reflection sheet that I have used with a bunch of teachers um, when I do PD or when I, you know, teach uh, these ongoing courses. Um, and in the reflection sheet, there's areas to reflect on strengths and challenges in your own practice with these four areas. But then I also give prompts to think about how are these four areas supported in uh, our systems and policies and school-wide? Because oftentimes what happens is that a teacher will reflect on you know, her own ability to be flexible or to give student agency. Um, but then in thinking about the systems will then recognize well, I'm a little bit limited in this because I can only go up to a point and then the school policy kicks in. And so I'm always asking teachers to just 
be mindful and grapple with that and to make changes on their own, but also recognize where could I push and where could I agitate a little bit to change some of these policies so that in my own practice, um, I have a little bit more room. I so appreciate that. And I, I just think about that you frame that really well in the book too, because you talk about how we can use this lens to influence our personal practice, our pedagogy, and then also this policy. And I love you use this visual in the book of feeling the friction. Um, Could you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say um, feel the friction in this work? Yeah, so I I say in the book that I give this little speech to almost every... uh, group of group of teachers that I'm working with over a period of time, because there always comes up this point where, you know, that, that tension we were just talking about of, I want to do this stuff in my classroom, but my district has this policy or my school has this policy. And so I can't really do it the way that I see that it needs to be done. Or even, hey, our whole school is trying this thing but then our state has this rule or there's a federal way that these funds are tied up. You know, So people are really saying, I can see what needs to happen and this, the bigger systems are holding me back. And so I say, you know, there, notice that friction, like notice the tension that you're seeing between what you believe could be and the things that need to change and, and sort of embrace that friction because that's the fuel that you need to make change. Um, and then I will sometimes say, you know, if enough of us are noticing and embracing that tension, then we will all work together to overthrow the unjust systems. Um, and I believe that, right? I believe that if enough people um, can can notice and and want to agitate for change, we can do it together. And I, I say a few times through the book, you know, do this work collectively. You don't have to be on an island to do it alone. You know, embrace community partners who are doing this work. Uh, work with your union, work with the teacher in the room next door who also wants to make these changes with you. So that reminds me, like you talk beautifully in this book at many times about um, it's not it's not the checklist, right? It, we have to take action, but we also have to have strong beliefs to guide us to that action. And so, and the two go hand in hand. And um, the ultimate goal, as you state in the book, is schools that are humanizing, that promote wellness and thriving for everybody, for all students and also for all educators. And um, I have such appreciation for the clarity of that goal. I think we get lost sometimes in complex mission statements and what's our purpose. But if we can frame school's purpose as being places where we can be our fully human selves, where we can um, find a sense of wellness and, and thrive, that's so powerful. That's such a clear like guide forward to me. And so <laughs> thinking about what you just said and thinking about how having that at the center, that gives us something to feel friction about, right? That fuel you talked about is fueling us to transform education into a liberatory space that affirms all of us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you know, that the piece about thriving um, sort of early in the writing process for this book, I had this ginormous pile of (laughs) books that I wanted to read to help inform what I was writing. And I was having a hard time 
uh, with <laughs> the anxiety of looking at that huge pile. And a, a good friend of mine, uh, Caitlin, was working on her dissertation at the time and um, writing a dissertation and writing a book are pretty close cousins. And she gave me this great piece of advice uh, to really sort by like, what do you really need to read directly to influence this project? And then separate that out from the stuff that you just kind of want to read that are tangentially related. And so I kind of went through this list and I was asking her advice about what to prioritize. And she had my list of books and she said, you need to prioritize. We want to do more than survive by Dr. Bettina Love. And so um, that suggestion was so right on time because you know anyone who's read that book knows how powerful it is and Dr. Love really talks about this idea of thriving and of uh, people's need to be well um, especially uh, for children of color especially for black children and teachers um, and and that book really for me pulled together so many threads uh, of equity-centered trauma-informed education. And so I was very influenced by it, um, at, as you see when I cite her throughout the book. So shout out to my friend, Caitlin, for, for putting that to the top of my list. I appreciated that. <laughs> shout out to Dr. Love for that amazing paradigm-shifting book. Um, yeah, a big appreciation for that. I love that book too. Sorry, I'm finding my way to back to my questions because we've jumped all around, uh, which I love. Um, so another book that I thought of when I was reading your book was um, I thought a lot about Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And the reason is this. You point out something that's so basic that I'm a little embarrassed at how it struck me. And that was, we can't punish students for their trauma response and be trauma informed. Like that's such a truth. And yet when I think about schools, often kids are being punished for their, for their responses to trauma. And it made me think about Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, how to be an anti-racist because he frames um, that anti-racism is different than assimilationism, which is this idea that we expect people to behave like us right? Like we expect them to behave in a certain way. And that certain way in schools is still defined by the dominant culture, white, middle-class or upper middle-class, um, heteronormative, right? And so in many ways, if we're punishing kids for their response to trauma, it's a kind of an assimilation, not unlike PBIS, which asks them be to behave like the dominant group. And, um, We've had this conversation, you and I, before, but I just really appreciate that you've made it very clear here that PBIS is not in any way trauma-informed. And I wonder if you see the connection between this sort of assimilationist way of being and PBIS and this, and this other notion that you sort of shed light on for me. Absolutely. Uh there are so many connections and I actually, you know, speaking of books on the to read pile, I actually haven't read uh, Dr. Kendi's book. So maybe putting it, putting it back on my list now that I'm through my, my big book writing list. Um, yes. I think that the, the paradigm shift for me is when looking at student behaviors, recognizing the way that behavior that may seem 
out of the norm or disorderly or whatever deficit label we want to throw on it, recognizing how some students' behaviors are the things that have kept them safe and help them survive up to this point. And that if you have coping strategies that have helped you survive, that those worked, right? Those were helpful strategies that kept you alive up until now. And that some of those strategies, then kids are in school and when they yell or when they run out of the room or when they uh, tell you to go F off or you know any of those things, that maybe in another situation, or maybe at school, to be honest, are, are protecting them from harm, um, keeping people at a safe distance, for example, um, removing themselves from an environment that feels harmful. If those things are working for them, and then we say, um, actually, that's not appropriate, um, actually, you aren't being safe, respectful, responsible, or whatever our PBIS buzzwords are in that particular school, it's pretty messed up. You know, it's pretty messed up to say this strategy that uh, you are using to protect yourself is not okay here. And this is one of those really complicated both ands, right? Because of course, we want to support all people to feel safe in many spaces, um, to be able to collaborate, to be able to work towards that thriving. And sometimes that does mean learning other coping strategies or learning other ways of communicating. Um, but I think that that's really complex because you can't also shame somebody for doing what they need to do to survive, um, for having a trauma response. And it's just a complicated conversation that gets very erased when we do something like PBIS that boils behaviors down into these like fake neutral lists that you post on the cafeteria wall, right? Um, if you're, you know, sitting quietly with your friends, if you don't yell, if you clean up your place, if you don't waste food, whatever it is, um, you know, we're kind of erasing the complexity that is behavior. And so it, it is just, it's very complicated. And so that, you know, part of my wish throughout the book is just to add that complexity and have people really think about um, what are the ways that we might be forcing this kind of, like that word you used, assimilationist perspective, as opposed to honoring um, that you're using the survival skills that have worked for you so far. That really, um, that really resonates for me. I've been doing a lot of work on culturally responsive pedagogies. And I think that's a similar thing, right? Where it, the problem is the simplicity of neutrality and assuming that we are uh, neutral in schools when we make rules and expect certain behaviors and certain create certain cultures as if it's one size fits all, or as if the dominant perspective is the only perspective. And so whether it's around um, behavior and trauma or behavior and culture, the point is to be able to see it from different perspectives and not just this one, this one um, that's fed by dominant culture. That yes. was not very eloquent, but I just feel that on this cellular level, this like notion of who gets to set the rules and that's the person yes. in power. 
Yes. And, and it's this interesting thing, right? Because part of what you're saying, right, is that it's, there's not, you know, we can't choose a dominant paradigm and say everyone has to act this way. And at the same time, something I often encourage teachers to do is really reflect on some of your hardest moments and what you needed during those hard moments um, and what that would have looked like if, if you were a student in your own school at that time. Um, you know, I think about, so the, the book is dedicated to my mother and I talk about her story in the introduction. Um, my mom passed away uh, almost exactly two years ago. Uh, it's coming up at the end of April. And I sometimes think about like the time after she passed away and I was grieving, well, at that stage in grieving at least, um, it was really hard for me to be around groups of people, right? I did not wanna be social. Um, and when it sort of came time that I was trying to re-enter social situations, um, if you had like PBIS expectations for my social skills at that time, I wouldn't have gotten any points or tiger bucks for it because right, I would go into a social setting and I didn't wanna to talk to anybody. I was sometimes rude and just kind of walked away from a conversation because I was overwhelmed. I flaked out on invitations, right? And so if I was a student in a school at that time, you might've looked at me and said, um, she's not working collaboratively with others. Um, she's not being positive in her interactions with her peers. Um, she's not getting her participation points today. Um, and at that time in my life, the last thing I needed was for someone to tell me you you suck at social situations right now, right? What I needed was flexibility and grace and understanding and, and love of my community. And so I invite teachers to really think about, you just don't know what's going on for your students, even if you think you do, and take that understanding of what you needed at those really low points and can you just be a person, right? Can you be a person and apply that to how you're responding to students, right? If you knew that, uh, that today, Monday, was the hardest day of your student's life, how would you respond to them if they were acting out or not being social or whatever it is? And I recognize that, you know, who's keeping the both and tracker going, but it's, it's this thing, right, that like, of course we wanna do that. And there is business of school to do, right? We have to keep going with the business of school and I can't respond 26 different ways to 26 different students and get done the business of school. So my invitation really is to just, uh, to, to make it complicated, right? To just see if I can move myself a little bit towards that humanity centered approach, what would happen? So I'm going to, I'm going to look at it from a different example because I had a lot of trauma in my childhood, um, uh, uh, which I don't need to go into because we don't, as you have taught me, Alex, we don't need to know people's trauma stories, but I had a lot of trauma in my childhood, my sister and I both, and we um, went to school with our trauma in different ways in our backpacks, if you will. Um, and my way was to be a rule follower. I found school to be a safe haven in a lot of ways, but my ability to follow the rules and be a good little girl did not mean that school was a healing place for me. It was just a way of hiding. And so even 
you really make it clear that trauma is a lens and not a label. Those are exactly your words. I want to like put them on billboards all over if Vermont allowed us to have billboards, but um, I would not have been labeled a, a, a trauma kid, if you will. There were air quotes there, folks, if you can hear them. And um, my sister probably was, I don't know. I don't think we had that language then, but she would have been. And our ways of dealing with it, with it were differently, uh, were very different. I thrived in school in some ways, but not emotionally, like not in a healing sense. I just got good grades. My sister did not thrive in school or emotionally. And so both of us were harmed by the insensitivity to our needs, um, regardless of whether we could follow the rules or not, or did we both probably could, mm -hmm. but whether we did <laughs> or not. Um, and so, yeah, so I guess, uh, that's a, a, a story in contrast a both and story to go along with yours. And I wondered, um, if you could talk a little bit about like moving from that label of trauma kids to that lens uh, trauma as a lens and the way that changes how we create systems mm. in schools. Well, thank you for sharing that piece of your story. And, and that is really resonant with the story of my mom that I share at the beginning of the book. And I, I shared that story for the purpose of illustrating exactly what you're saying, that it needs to be a lens because uh, the kids who are um, being rule followers and perfectionists as a trauma coping mechanism, they need a trauma-informed environment just as much as the kids who are very loudly proclaiming that they are going through a hard time. Um, you could have had a, a healing environment um, without ever having to, to tell anybody that you needed that if your teachers uh, were trying to create this whole trauma-informed school with this lens. And so when I talk about the lens, not the label, I, I talk about looking at everything in school through this lens of how does trauma impact people? How is trauma present in our lives and in our schools? Um, and then using that as, as a way to shift our practices. And connecting that as well to equity in the sense that, you know, some schools will say, oh, we're, we're doing equity because we have, um, you know, if, if a student asks us for financial help, then they can have it for the field trip. Um, if a student asks us for an accommodation, they can have it. Um, that still requires somebody to air their story for you in order to get support. And so I'm asking people to make the shift of what would it look like if you just offered the support, if you just made equitable spaces where no one ever had to come and say, I need this before they got it. Right. You don't have to bleed to get what you need here. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of schools mm -hmm. we want to have. I, yes, because so many of us won't speak up if we have to, the story itself is resharing that story itself is already going to be damaging enough that we we're not going to advocate for ourselves mm -hmm. necessarily. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that a lot of, when it comes to trauma, a lot of kids don't recognize what they're going through while they're going through it. Right. Uh, you know, I think most of us will look back on things that happen in childhood 
and go, oh, that's a thing that happened, right? <laughs> Whereas at the time, it was just, you know, you're just living day to day. You don't necessarily know what's going on. And so it's it's not very often that a student is going to walk up to you and say, hello, I have trauma, please help me, right? <laughs> you know, more often, uh, you're not going to hear anything about it, or you're just going to see some responses that maybe give you an indicator. And so that's really that need to, to be universal. So that, that leads right where I wanted to lead right to this place <laughs> of like, one of the things you talk about is empowerment and how can schools be empowering places for, for kids. And one of the things I um, highlighted and put exclamations points around was on page 69, flattening the imbalance of power also means re-examining our curricular choices. Students' lives are full of rich areas for exploration and real problems to solve. We don't need to give students fake work that is meaningless in the context of their lives. If we want to help students recognize and use their own power in the world, we need to make sure that our academics are aligned with that goal. I want schools that help kids learn to use their power so much. And for me, this seems really... Um, this seems to align with Act 77 and particularly um, personally meaningful learning opportunities, flexible pathways. And, um, and the, the way I see that is like, I as an educator don't get to decide what is meaningful. Students get to decide what is meaningful. There's so much power in reframing curriculum through that, uh, through that lens, through that vantage point. Absolutely. And that's really something I was so lucky to experience at the alternative school where I worked because we really designed all curriculum around our specific students' interests and strengths and what they were working on. Um, and, you know, when you talk about giving students real work or making it relevant to their lives, increasing agency, you know, I think we can, um, there's a lot of examples where you can go really complicated really fast, right? If you look at problem-based learning or project-based learning and how can we make our school more sustainable or let's advocate for this change in our town. Um, and all those things are amazing and I love them. And I wanna give an example of this that is really low stakes because I think it's important to recognize uh, you don't have to go wild in order to do this. So I had a student um, once in an English class and uh, we were just basically working on writing fluency in a really broad way. And she really didn't want to do it at all, hated English, didn't want to engage with me. So we were just chit-chatting one day and she was complaining about how she really wanted to get a pug and her mom was on board with it, but they lived in an apartment and dogs weren't allowed. So I said, okay, let's write a letter to your landlord. And so it was just as simple as that, right? We, we looked up, you know, how to write a letter. Uh, we looked up, you know, how to address something to your landlord. We looked up pug facts, right? <laughs> to like make the case that this was a great dog to have in a rental. Um, and she worked on this letter and it was great. Um, and it was very simple and took little to no, you know, wild planning on my, you know, I didn't have to overthrow the way that I teach in order to do this. And so I think, you know, sometimes I can get really excited about 
community-based learning experiences and uh, dismantling oppression through our classrooms and everything. And, and we should get excited about that. But I also just wanna speak to people who are overwhelmed and say, it doesn't have to be really big. You can just start with, hey, landlord, I would like to have a pug in my apartment and go from there. <laughs> I appreciate that. And I appreciate the way it helps uh, students learn to advocate for themselves and be members of their active members of not just the school community, but the broader community, right? Mm -hmm. And like start to see themselves as, as, um, as people with agency, mm -hmm. as, as opposed to people who have to do what they're told to do. Mm -hmm. There was a, at, at the school where I worked, there was this phrase that maybe got overused at times, but was, let's make a plan. Um, or come up with a plan or suggest a plan. And it was this idea that, hey, if you wanna see something change, come up with a plan and we'll try to do it. Um, and I just think about the difference between that and you know, some schools where, hey, I'm upset about this thing and there's no path, right? There's what, it, what even is the path to making a change? And I ask teachers this too sometimes when we're talking about policy, um, you know, we look at policies that they would like to shift. And then I ask them, if you wanted to change this, what actually would be your steps? And I invite them to really go and figure out who are the people I would have to talk to? What is the meeting I would have to go to? Is there even a way that I could shift this? And a lot of them are sometimes surprised to find that, um, it, it's not as complex as they had initially thought. And so that can be a path to agency as well as just making it more transparent. How can I make a change if I want to? It just reminds me of the way you talk about um, things in this book, which is to me, you're saying empowered teachers can empower students. And mm -hmm. so this mm -hmm. needs to happen at the systems level for educators in order for it to happen at the level for students too. Absolutely. Gorski would say, fix injustice, not kids, people, and start at all levels. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to write this book, first of all, and to <laughs> talk to me about it, second of all. I so appreciate the work you do, Alex, and the way you show up in the world, and I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an episode of VTED Reads, a podcast about books by, for, and with Vermont educators. Our heartfelt thanks go out to Alex Chevron Bennett. Her new book, Equity-Centered Trauma-Informed Education, should be available at libraries all over. Special thanks go out to our host with the most, Jeannie Phillips in absentia. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. Find out more by visiting vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org.